Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. Today's guest on Conversations with Big Rich is Rory Desargent. Rory is the owner of Rad Designs, which is a company that specializes in shift management systems. Rory, thank you for coming on board with with this interview today and conversations with Big Rich and discussing your background and history related to off-road. And how did you get started? First of all, again, thank you. Great to be here, Rich. Uh, I got started, I was raised on a wheat farm in southeastern Washington. So I was lived in the country, you know, it was all about the dirt. I started riding motorcycles when I was maybe nine years old. It was a Honda 90 and I couldn't touch the ground. So I started on the center stand and rock it off and go right around. And hopefully I could not wreck and be able to get up and get going again if I did. Uh, that kind of progressed into where I lived. The, my dad worked for this farmer that owned the property. He didn't have horses. He had motorcycles to round up the cows. So it was kind of a motorized thing that, I, you know, that influenced that way. My first set of wheels was a motorcycle. I bought an enduro, you know, a dual sport. So that was what I had when I turned 16, you know, to drive around in. And I was always out, you know, like I said, we had quite a bit of acres and a lot of cattle. So I'd always be out on the cow trails riding around and doing the dirt that way. Uh, that lasted for two years riding that. And I was in high school and I bought a 70 Challenger. So that was kind of like hot, you know, hot rod type, you know, car. But, you know, on the farm, we had a, the owner had a 1946 CJ2A that he's the original owner of. It's still in his family. He's passed away now, but it's still in his family. So I just drove that. I mean, we use that for fixing fences and spraying weeds. So I spent a lot of seat time in that old Willie's driving around and realizing it didn't have enough power to, spin out and get stuck so it just went up all those hills because it was just amazing the places we could go and we had a stout 800 too that was you know wasn't nearly as fun but you know it that was kind of the two utility vehicles along with a 51 power wagon so th- with the pto winch so we're always out you know you spend a lot of time outdoors you know driving four-wheel drives around on a ranch so that was kind of the influence i had there uh went to college you know had the car Soon as I started working full time, I moved to Pasco, Richland, the Tri Cities there in Washington, 
and I met some guys that were in a four-wheel drive club. You know, Jeep club is what everybody called it back then. And I had just bought a brand new 1982 Dodge D50. And they said, you have a four-wheel drive? I go, oh, yeah. What do you have? You know, these guys, Broncos, Jeeps, you know. Well, I've got an 82 Dodge D50. And you could see just kind of like the smirk on their faces going, yeah, okay, sure. You know, well, you can come along and see how you do. Well, I went out a couple times with them, and it came with like F70-14s or something like that on there, you know, little little tiny tires. A couple trips out, and there was sand, a lot of sand dunes. You know, there were little small areas of sand dunes we'd go play in. I found a set of 31-10-50s. Well, they didn't quite fit until I took the die grinder to the fender wells to make everything fit. And this was like six months after I'd bought this pickup. You know, and they, there are these guys were all like, man, I can't believe you're doing that to your new truck. I'm like, well, it, I bought it to go wheel. Let's go wheel. Well, that made all the difference in the world. Then I could run around with everybody. So that evolved into the what they called the Jeep rodeos that they had in the Northwest at the time. And they were into that. So I went to a few of those events and started racing the D50 doing that. And that led to more modifications where there was a shop in Kennewick, Washington called Sunland Off Road. And I had uh, Jim Chesley was the head fabricator there. Dual shock the front end so that it didn't bounce so bad going through the bumps. And we had a, a roll bar in it, window nets, the racing seats and full harnesses and everything for racing. And just started racing that. And that was kind of really, I really got into it that way until I broke it one time. And that was still my daily driver. So I would drive it to races, race it, drive it home. I even drove it to Olympia, which was like four hours away, race the big PNW, all everybody summer convention race, and then drove it home. You know, just I always had really good luck until I was the closest race I ever raced. I broke the transfer case in it. So then I had to get towed home. I realized that wasn't a good idea anymore. And uh, so I decided to build a race Jeep. One of the guys, and I was living back in Pomeroy at that time, one of the guys that I knew from the Tri-Cities dad was selling a frame had the, and a tub with, and it had the nose on it. It was a fiberglass nose and it had the full cage in it, but there was nothing else there. So I went and bought that for, you know, a couple hundred bucks or whatever, hauled it home on the trailer with, you know, had a couple friends go help me. We hauled it home on the trailer, started building my first race Jeep. Well, I've been around it enough to know that the stock width CJ5 axles are just too narrow for the obstacle course type racing we were doing you do one time lap type thing or you would do they had it set up in figure eights where there'd be a long side and a short side so you'd you'd start at the same time in opposite directions but you both had to complete the same amount of track and you come back to the start finish line you know first guy there wins and my truck just handled awesome i mean it was just and it was just enough wider so that it would handle good. So I decided when I'm building the race Jeep, I'm going to do wider running gear. So I went with Scout 2 width gear. That was a Dany 44 rear with a locker. And it was actually an old Wagoneer front Dana 27. Closed wow. knuckle. Yep. So I'm yep. running 31 Desert Dog X-Treads on it. Leaf spring front. And I made a trailing arm with a four-link rear on coil springs. So this was like about 1985 or 86, I built this. And that thing just handled like a dream. Oh, man. And then so it started out with the 
Wagoneer I had bought for parts. So with the 360 Turbo 400 Dana 20, got tired of the 360 and found somebody to buy it and built, bought an, got an old 350 Chevy out of one of my grandpa's old junk cars, rebuilt that with, you know, spare parts from, you know, I'm like, you know, making minimum wage almost, you know, working on the farm with my dad and didn't have a lot of money. So I got used 10 and a half to one pistons. I got to use cam from somebody else to put all in this, this 350 Chevy to, so I could go race, you know? So we got that all put in and then I raced it quite a bit. You know, it seems like I hardly ever broke in the D50, but I always find something that broke in the, in that Jeep every time, you know, even though there was nothing Jeep about it really, but I always seem to break something. And that lasted for just a few years. And then I just had kids and we started getting into motorcycles. So we kind of faded away there, did the dirt bike thing for quite a few years. And I never really got back into it till my kids were teenagers. You know, I always had a four wheel drive pickup or something. Well, I guess in between there, between the racing, I traded that D50 straight across for a 67 Bronco to a friend of mine, a really close friend. Well, the 67 Bronco was the 302 three speed. And it was rolling on 40s. Wow. So this, but this was the era, you know, this was the the late 80s, you know, and lifted trucks were the thing. And it looked like a stomper. They were like, you know, monster mutter boggers or whatever, you know, rolling down the road. It was a handful to drive. It was absolutely terrible. Well, I blew up the transmission in it. Go figure. First, I blew up the front end. So we built a high pinion 44, narrowed a half ton to put in it. Then I, the transmission went out of it, and I decided it was time to do something different. So I traded the 40s to a fr- another friend for a 429 and a C6 out of a Thunderbird. <laughs> so I put that into that Bronco. Of course, I had to lower it down to get drive lines work because, you know, everything's longer and you get drive line angles right and everything. And I you stepped down to like a 35 or something like that, you know, and they were the so we're still in the bias belted era. So it was uh, the buckshot mutters that yep. were on it, 35 inch buckshot mutters, you know? So that was still what was going on then. So I, and I had that actually for quite a while and it was just, it was fun to drive, but it wasn't much for four wheeling. It just, honestly, I think it had too much horsepower. You know, it was too, you just didn't seem to want to, maybe it would if I had lockers, you know, that was in the era where nobody was running lockers at the time. Even when we go snow wheeling, everybody's running open diffs. You know, we'd be on three feet of snow, packed snow, and 11, 15 true tracks with open diffs and just thinking we can go anywhere. You know, it was just a blast back then. So, uh, oh, so then we, jumping back ahead to my kids are teenagers, and one of them's, you can, I, you know, he's more, a little bit more of the outdoor kid, wanted a, a pickup. So I bought this 1983 Toyota pickup. And it had quite a few miles on it and needed some work. So I pulled the motor and transmission out of it. And the transmission was actually the housing was broke on it. Motor needed rebuilt because, you know, we're going to build this for the kid. We figured we'd just go clear through everything. Got a new engine for it. And I decided I wanted an automatic transmission in this Toyota pickup. So I went to this local shop where these guys were kind of Toyota guys, but they did all sorts of repairs. Said, "Hey, can you guys find me an automatic transmission to fit my 22R?" Okay, you know it was like three days later they called me up. Hey, we've got one. All right, cool. So I get all that bolted in, and then I realize 
you know, it, like I was saying, it's been a few years because I was like the Turbo 400 C6, you know, transmissions and everything. And here's this electronic shift four-speed automatic, you know. I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this? And no, literally, I'd put lockers front and rear, you know. I mean, I've just gone through this whole pickup to find that the transmission isn't going to want to shift because there's no computer. So then I set about on the Internet doing some searching, and I didn't ever really – I found answers where people had done things, but there wasn't really a solution. So that's kind of got me started. Well, I'm going to build something to make it work. Well, I found out the on-off sequence. So I set up some two rocker switches that I could flip on and off just so I could drive the thing around. Now that turned into a different setup with rocker switches, you know, toggle switches that I made work. And then finally I decided, well, I need something that's going to, you know, be more than trying to flip switches. This is just kind of ridiculous. That evolved into designing the rail shift controller, which is what you've got in your Jeep. Right. So that's the first generation of that came about. So I put that in there. Well, then, you know, I'm showing my build on, you know, all the Toyota forums and everything, you know, I'm pirate and nobody with Toyota runs automatics. I mean, that's just stupid because you've got this little four cylinder that can't pull itself down the road with big tires and an automatic, you know? So, but I found out that the, XJs have that same transmission. Okay, it's made by the same company and they make a version. They made versions for several different companies, but they made a version for the Jeeps and they have one for Toyotas. So that was all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I can start selling shifters. And that's when I started, you know, being the shifter guy, you know, before anything else. You know, I mean, that was the Toyota. I still have that Toyota. I still drive it around out and about all the time. You know, I mean, it's still running going it's done uh upgraded with a different engine it's been through a couple different shifter setups because i i try to run what i sell you know right just so you know one is i know what's good and what's bad and you know weak points or whatever and then it's like if you don't use your own product it just doesn't seem like you're a very good spokesman that way so i i tried to do that so but yeah i still have that and then i oh i build an xj i like the way they drive you know, I like the visibility out of one. I mean, they're just, a, I think they're really a comfortable vehicle. A four liter has tons of power with the automatic transmission. So I built one of those up kind of for snow wheeling and ended up selling it to my son-in-law. And that wasn't too big of a deal. I mean, I, he's a great guy. So I didn't have a problem doing that at all. But it, it was, a, the build was probably the most fun. And he's, he still has it. He snow wheels the heck out of it. He's running 35s on it with the stock axles. And it's snow wheeling, you know, it, you don't get the wear and tear you do in the desert or the rocks or anything. So you can run, run those little axles. And, you know, as many times as we've been out together in like the last 10 years, he, I, he's never broken anything but a distributor cap. Wow. So <laughs> it, it's been, uh, been a lot of fun doing all that. So let's go back a little ways when you were growing up on the farm. Yeah. That's an environment where, you typically have to figure things out, meaning, you know, if you need something or you, you you have to change something, you typically figure out a way to make it yourself. Is is that what happened on yes. the farm? Is that, is that oh, how definitely. You- yep. I, I, we had a 50 by 100 Quonset hut that was the shop. Okay. And the owner of the farm, because I was, I had a go-kart you know, be between motorcycles in there, you know, as a little kid with a five horse Briggs on it. And it was a go-kart made for pavement. 
Well, out in the country, I mean, we were like, you know, five or six miles from paved road. So, you know, it's all gravel. And well, you tried to drive it down night. I'd drive it up our driveway, which was a half mile long and try to take it down the county road. Well, that little mound of gravel that's in the center between the two tire tracks, the frame had hit that and the gravel spray in your face. So I had uh, went back to the shop and started cutting and welding stuff. And how that kind of came about, that experience was the owner, again, that great guy that had the CJ2A. He tells me one day, he goes, anything in the shop you can use. He goes, if you want to learn to weld, there's that 55 gallon barrel full of scrap pull parts out of there and you can burn all the rod you want. That's fine. And you know, the cutting torch, whatever in here you want to use, just make sure you put everything away when you're done. So that was, they had a lathe also, you know, so I kind of cut my teeth, you know, machining some stuff on the lathe, you know, things that didn't quite fit. I kind of, you know, a young teenager just kind of hacking stuff together, but that was kind of the building something all the time. So it was the go-kart I built and then and on a few other things after that. But yeah, it was a definitely an environment of building, repairing your own equipment and, you know, having to weld and cut and everything else. Okay. You ended up teaching. How did you, how did you get into the education and about when did that happen? It kind of goes back to, I was working on the farm and I'd just gotten married, had one kid and decided that I wanted a job with like a retirement and stuff like that. You know, I had some long talks with my dad because my dad ended up working for the guy for like 30 years. I don't think he regretted it, but he also told me, you know, some of the downfalls of working for somebody and my dad and I get along great worked you know we were a team you know it was one of the best people i've ever worked with so i get a call from a fellow four-wheeler that's a assistant manager of a machine shop at a factory that makes ammunition hey you want a job in the shop yeah send me your resume so i get this job in this machine shop and i start doing tool and die you know learning all that job I uh, get my apprenticeship. I go through apprenticeship program to be a journeyman machinist. From there, I was offered a job just kind of out of the blue to go to engineering to work to design bullets. Because I had a two-year engineering degree. I have a two-year engineering degree also. So I said, yeah, this sounds like a great opportunity. So I spent an entire year doing that whole R&D thing on a new hunting bullet. I got done and I was just on loan from the machine shop at the time. And then they said, well, we want him to come back for another year to design the machine. So then I headed that all up. So we got that done. Well, that those part time, you know, a year here, a year there. Then the next year was, well, we need to refine the process when we're in production. Well, that ended up being ended up getting hired full time into engineering. Just doing product development, you know, and it was like and I always good about a what if. And what if we try this? What if we try that? And developing things that way. So that my personality helped a lot that way. So that gave me the machining experience, engineering experience. And I'd worked there 20 some years and I felt like I was getting dumber every day I was there. <laughs> I just wasn't, wasn't feeling inspired anymore. So I found a job. By that time, I'm building shifters, you know, afternoons and weekends. I had a couple of, or I had a CNC, small CNC mill, and this company's from Wisconsin who makes them. 
they had a job opening for an R&D engineer. So I said, oh, I'm going to send in my resume and see what happens. So I sent him my resume. The owner of the company, it's a small company of like 20 people, calls me the next day and says, well, we're going to fly you out here for an interview. So I fly out to Wisconsin, do the interview, get the job offer that day, move to Wisconsin. So while I'm at Wisconsin, besides um, designing new products, uh, helping with technical support on the existing products, we'd have monthly classes that teach machining. So I was part of that. Well, I was there two and a half years, and there were some family things. We, we never sold our house that we had in Washington. Um, my daughter lived there. Some friends lived there. And then finally, it was becoming vacant, and we decided it was time to move back. So we moved back there. I got a job being a machinist back at the Bullet Factory again and did that for one more year, and the teaching job came up. And it was like Sunday, you know, and I mean, I hated it when I left there the first time. And I hated it more being at that place this time. And I saw I picked up the paper. Sunday paper because I'm working weekends because I lost all my seniority. I had all my vacation retroactive, but plant seniority had zero. So I'm on weekend night shift, I think, at the time. And I'm looking at the paper and I'm like, read the ad for this assistant professor to teach engineering design and machining, intro to machining. I go, but that's me. That's me. That's exactly me. So I sent him my resume and yeah, I got hired at that job there. I mean, it was just bam, thank you. And, you know, and so I started teaching at the Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. I taught the SolidWorks. Um, that was an entire year, the second year of their, you know, drafting design using SolidWorks. I taught that to the second year engineering technology students. And I also taught an intro to machining basically for the first year CNC machinists. So I just taught the manual machining stuff, just kind of the concepts of, you know, what you have to do to, to make a cut. And, you know, and I had cool, just some goofy little parts that I'd give the kids, you know, drawings of and have them machine these parts out. So that, that worked out real well until a year ago and I decided to just move out on my own here, you know, and not just work for myself basically. So that's where we're at now. Moved to another, another house, bigger shops and building more parts than ever. Excellent. So yeah, the Toyota thing led with the automatic led into building parts, parts for the XJ, the rail shifters and all that, that stuff. What other products do you offer and how did some of those come about? Well, I'll go back to that. Yeah. the So I had the Toyota. So I'm out with some friends and I'd already had the rail out. I was running the rail or maybe even the Baja, which was, it's a bigger version of the rail that I built when somebody, somebody that was racing Jeep speed wanted to know if that would work in his Jeep speed. So I said, I, it's small. It's going to fill up with dust. It's probably not the best suited for that environment. Could you build me something? I said, yeah, let me see what I can do. So I came up with what was the Baja, which I'm in the, the third version of that right now. And I think the guy that has the original one is still running it, which is just phenomenal to hear. Last I heard from him, he still was still out playing in the desert and everything with it. Wow. But so I had that in my Toyota, one of those, and we're out snow wheeling. 
and I'm with a friend that's got a pretty much stock XJ and he gets stuck and he's trying to rock back and forth and he's like not getting it in the right gear and, you know, putting it in park or neutral. And he looked at me and asked me, why don't you build a floor shifter for one of these? I'm like, well, that's a cool idea. I could, you know, I could see it right there, what, what was going on with him. So I created the rock floor shifter and that's been huge with the XJ thing. So that kind of evolved into, you know, more, just more shifting components because I had the Toyota. I ended up putting dual cases in it because that's what you do with a Toyota. <laughs> and I wanted the triple sticks like I sell now to move the rear levers to the front case. So all three levers are together. So there's, you know, one spot where the levers are. So I created that product, the triple sticks. That was 2011. After that, there wasn't really too much new until I really came out with the VX shifter, which is out now, which is a floor shifter that fits just about every American, popular American-made transmission. I have it also set up to be able to run some switch, micro switches in it so you can run the electric shift four speeds like what my Toyota has, the you know your Cherokee. So it's all in one shifter instead of having maybe two, like a shifter with a little shift controller in it, you know, type of setup. So that's kind of where that, and then there's just some other little odds and ends. I got, uh, what has it been? Three, three or four years now I've been going to We Rocks. I think I've been really involved the last three and, you know, meeting a lot of new people and we'd be at an event and I go, what is that all about? And go, well, you have to have your transmission tube plugged so you don't spill oil if you roll over. And he was like a bolt with tape wrapped around it and wrapped around the dipstick. And I go, well, that's just tacky. So I did a design and machine have plugs machined with O-rings on them to replace the dipstick for that. So little things like that in the Wee Rock, I've had a lot of feedback from competitors, you know, showing me broken parts. And well, I think I could do something better and think, you know, adding something new to the product line that way to, you know, try to help everybody in the off-road thing, you know, that way. Right. So that's been a great, re- it's been a great partnership with all the competitors and, you know, it's, it's like a family, you know, everybody's kind of like there to help everybody else out. So let's say it's a neat, neat environment. So a lot of your products, or it sounds like some of the products at least have come about because of racing, whether it was back in the D50 and then what you learned there and then racing the Jeep, those things transfer over into the real life trail wheeling. Do you find that to be the case? With with a background, like growing up on the farm, then when I've got the Bronco, I started doing more exploring and the race Jeep, you know, I mean, there's, you'd race it, but I had it on this farm. So I was out going in these canyons and draws, trying to pick lines to get up. Can if I get from here to here, or I'd use it to herd the cattle up in the fall, you know? So it was always about where can I go? pushing the limit. It's kind of like the, any kind of the competition. I've always been around the competition and the rock crawling was something new that intrigued me. I'd always look at that stuff. but didn't really know there was, you know, growing up, we had these rocky bluffs and you think about, Oh, if I could drive through that thinking now nah, there's no way until you go to a, a wee rock event and see, Oh my gosh, this is incredible. You know, wow. <laughs> so all of, all of it, I think flows together that, you know, that of my background in everything I've done, to, to be where I'm at doing what I am now. So it was more about product development came about from just trail wheeling and with friends and stuff. 
it's probably most of it has come from trail wheeling, you know, um, hanging out with friends, you know, with in conversations, you know, from the beginning of why don't you build one of these or what if we had one of those? And I still get phone calls asking things like that, that I, you know, sometimes it's like, well, yeah, you and one other person in the next 13 years is going to want that or, hey, that's a great idea. Let me see what I can do. Um, but it's weekend stuff, the people I'm around, you know, that you, you talk, it's just, you know, you're hanging out, you're talking to people and, you know, things come up in conversation. So, and I like a challenge. So I'll look at to see what, if it's possible, if I think if it fits what I want to do, you know, I don't usually, if somebody says, Hey, well, why don't you build a twin stick for an atlas well there's like two or three other companies that already do so i really don't have an interest in doing that you know that's right not really what my business model is you know i try to try to be innovative within the realms of what i do and kind of specific for that my vx shifter the floor shifter i have now that i'm selling it's really not like what anybody else has so that i don't think i'm trying to take you know, a market share away from anybody else totally. I mean, of course, there's other shifters out there that people are using, but I think I've done something better and more unique. So I don't feel like I'm, you know, impeding on somebody else's business, you know, that way at all. It's just, uh, I, I saw a need for something I thought could be improved. So I decided to jump in it that way and see what will happen. So that's kind of been it all along, you know, like you said, um, friends, you know, just even customers, you know, that will call and ask, hey, I heard about you. Could you do this, do you think, or whatever? So when I visited your shop at the old house, you had one of the one of the products that you showed me that I really liked was the, they were like a hold down clamping system type thing that, you know, for like, well, just about anything to put into your, your vehicle that you wanted to clamp down. And it, I don't remember if they were, if they were all stuff that attaches to tube or if it, you know, you could use it like anywhere. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's the AMS mounts that I have. Yeah. They can attach to a tube or they can attach to a flat plate. It's not, you're not limited to a tube only with the way they're designed. Fire extinguisher mounts are probably the most popular thing guys are using them for. Quite a few of those guys, like, you know, that I've met in Wee Rock are running them now. Um, and, and, you know, they've survived some pretty good bashes and stuff and still they're still usable. Guys have used them for their Bluetooth speakers. So you can take them in and out. They're locked in securely when they're out wheeling, listening to their music, but they can pull a pin and be able to take them out. Yeah, it's pretty versatile that way with uh, whatever you really want to try. I uh, mocked up one to put a first aid kit on. So, because that seems to be the thing that's always buried somewhere inside a vehicle, you know, it's like, and that's probably the thing you want on top the most, you know, right, so, right behind the fire extinguisher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah it, it's, it's little things like that. That's just like, I didn't like what was out there at the time um, where we live in the Northwest. You know, I live on the dry side of the state, but still a lot more rain and humidity than what you get in the Southwest. So there's these bare steel mounts that guys make that are you know, 100% functional, but one trip out in the snow wheeling, they're, you know, they just surface rust and you're got to spray them down with WD-40 or whatever, you know. So I decided something that would be all aluminum, they're anodized, black, kind of a neutral color, and 
Yeah, there's that's what's in the back of my truck now for my fire extinguisher. So and it, it's there all the time out in the weather all the time, you know, and you can still stainless hardware. So you can just uh, it'll always be ready to use no matter what the weather is. Right. What other products do you have um, besides the VX shifter, the, the rail, the triple triple stick set up for the Toyotas and those mounts? Are there any other products that we should uh, we should know about? One of the things that's actually kind of halfway caught on is just some different shift lever components for the Atlas transfer cases. Okay. Um, That kind of came about the same way. I was approached about, hey, look, this broke when I was out wheeling. What do you think? And I looked at the parts and I go, well, that's interesting. Well, I think I could come up with something better. And I did. And so far, everybody's really had given me really positive feedback on that, on how that works. And it's like called a heavy duty kit for the Atlas shift kit. And it's some rods and hymes and different pivot bolts that seems to take some of the, some of the spongy, the, the feedback I get, it takes the sponginess out of the shift feel. Right. I don't have an Atlas, so I can't really say, you know, how it, how it works, but uh, you know, I have great people that I've, supplied test parts too that have gave me some great feedback and it's actually worked out real well. Excellent. That's, that's important for sure. You're, you're up in, up in Washington, you're up in the, the area you're at now is Spokane area. So we're, yeah, we're in about 30 miles from the Idaho border. You know, I, I would kind of call it truly Eastern Washington. You know, we're really not the North and we're really not the Southeastern part. But uh, um, it's like I said, a little drier here. We, I, where I live, it's the end of a dead end county road. It's all timbered pine trees, so it's uh, nice to have a rural location, but still be 15 minutes from anything I need in a big city. You know, ten acres, five ten. acres. Oh, five acres, five acres. Okay. Yep. Yep. And then so I've got. Since I have since bought another XJ just to kind of like a daily driver around, so I'm not driving my one-ton pickup anywhere or anything. And then we, my daughter gave um, her niece, you know, our other granddaughter, her old XJ, and she drives that around through the trees. I mean, she'll go out for hours just driving around through the trees. And I mean, it's and it's the trees here aren't 20 feet apart; they're like six feet apart or seven feet apart. So there's places where if you don't pick the line, you're going to smash into something. But, man, she'll spend hours weaving her way through those trees and, you know, wheeling and having fun out here. So it, it's a great location to be at now. And that's that's heaven, correct? Yes, that's heaven. So what's on the future? Are there any products that you have? Well, you probably don't want to talk about future products because you don't want anybody to jump the gun on you. <laughs> You know, that's, I think that's kind of unique. Uh, no, I, nothing huge. The VX probably to expand that more, you know, and I'm just working on getting that promoted to everybody. And it is, I, you know, it is catching on. Uh, it's tough to come out with something that isn't like, uh, the rail shifter, you know, there was no competition when I started that. So that wasn't really too big of a deal. Well, stepping up into floor shifters, there is competition. So you have to, you know, work your way into that market and talk to the right people and, you know, that'll help you, you know, through whatever goes on, you know, like I'm a, 
marketing partner with the We Rock events, you know, so that's that's great for getting it out to the to those guys. And when a couple of people that are our competitors have really helped promote my products too. So that's been a great asset that way. You know, it's people like that that you have to hook up with, I think, and you know, organizations and you know, to help, you know, see who you are and what you're doing. And through the competition scene, the guys that are competing are also trail wheelers and their friends and people that they end up wheeling with, see what they're using. And everybody right. wants, you know, truly people want to be racers. You know, they may not, oh, yeah. they, they may be closet racers where they don't really want to go out and compete, but they want their stuff to be as good as. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely to the T is that, uh, you know, I grew up um, when I first started. So I had that D 50 and, you know, I mean, IFS, it, it like handled in the whoops and stuff better than anything, you know, better than a Jeep ever thought of and a longer wheelbase and everything, you know, and, you know, it's like Walker Evans, you know, I want to grow up to be like Walker Evans, you know, Rod Hall, you know. So let's, let's discuss your working relationship with other companies to produce the products you're doing. And then where I want to go after that is I'd like to go into stepping away from what is normal, what most people in society see as normal, you know, a job, you know, working for a company, working um, as an employee, working as a teacher, and then going into business for yourself, that, that life change. Let's touch on that first, those life change events. I had a guy that I was talking to today over social that has just changed jobs after, well, he's retired after 24, 25 years. He feels that he's kind of lost. You know, he's kind of lost his identity of what he's done for so many years. And he's not sure, you know, where to go, what to do, who he is. And, you know, 20 years ago, I walked away from a normal job and became an off-road event promoter and has have loved every minute of it. To me, it was nothing because I never stayed in a job long enough to ever felt, feel like I truly belonged in that profession or with that company. So going to work for myself a number of times that I had done in different job venues was easy. What was that like for you walking away from, I, I know that you, you said at the Bullet Company, you were you know, you were just kind of tired of it. And then you went into machining with a, you know, in totally changing states. Let's talk about that. What was, what was that like? Went to Wisconsin. That it was, I'd never worked anywhere, but within 30 miles of where I grew up, you know, pretty much. I guess I shouldn't say that because Tri-Cities was further away, but still never really out of the area. So I moved to Wisconsin, totally different culture. And not bad. It's just, you know, you, you didn't, re- I'd never been anywhere enough, hadn't traveled as, you know, to know, you know, anything about that. I wondered what the heck I was doing. I honestly got to tell you, I'm like packed up New Year's Day, driving out to Wisconsin, you know, cr- clear, you know, it's 1800 miles. And I'm just thinking, is this the right thing to do? This is absolutely insane. You just left a job, you know, you've had for 22 years to, drive 1800 miles and hope this is something you're going to want to do. So definitely emotional feelings that way. Um, 
And then moving back, it was the same thing. Are you sure I want to leave this job? Man, these people are fantastic. I love this. You know, coming back to, uh, you know, work where I didn't want to be. But it was a good job with paying benefits. So, but it all, it came back to when I applied for that job at the college. Every bit of that experience mattered, you know. And then going to there, that job, totally different culture. Again, you know, I went to a two-year community college for my degree. So being at a four-year school and the culture that's there is so totally different the way it's ran. And I was surprised it's ran a lot like a big corporation. There wasn't really a lot of changes that way, except the people I worked with were fun. I had really a great, you know, the people I worked with in our area was just a lot of fun people. So it was it was a great, great job. So then the next big job change is like to not teach and to build shifters. So uh, I started in 2008, I started my company. So now come 2019, and I decide to quit teaching, which I absolutely loved, move to Spokane, and just go out on my own to do this full time. You know, something I've been doing nights and weekends, and now it's, you know, you know it's not eight to five for me because I'm usually out here by seven o'clock, but, you know. I, I get my hours in every day anyway. So it was kind of scary. I got to admit, it was like kind of, you know, I was more stressed about watching, you know, sales figures every week instead of worrying about what the month before was because you start watching every week thinking, oh, this is terrible. This was a stupid idea. Why am I even doing this? You know, I'm going to have to get a real job. This isn't going to work. But no, actually, <clears throat> this year has been the best year we've ever had in sales. So I just, you know, I, I, and that's what my wife, you know, lovely wife, we've been married uh, since 1988. She keeps reminding me because it'll be all right. You just need to like relax. We'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And she's right. I just need to chill out and, you know, look at the big picture instead of, you know, one day, Oh no, nobody bought anything today. We're going bankrupt, you know? So (laughs) And it's not really bankrupt because I, I I don't know people any money for any of my equipment or anything. So it's just a matter of, you know, don't don't go to McDonald's that day, maybe, or something like that, you know. <laughs> I would suggest not going to McDonald's anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of the companies that you've worked that you work with to get your products done. What, are they local? Are they outside of the area? How did you meet them? That kind of thing. Um, There's most of the things I have, I build internally, except for laser cut parts. There's a local shop that I have laser cut things that don't need bent. And I've also had laser nut cut parts for me also. And honestly, the, the, the price is the same, but laser nut can bend them. They can have a CNC press break to be able to bend parts I need bent. So they've been a great asset that way. You know, of course, Cody Wagner and LaserNut are part of the We Rock thing, and that's how I met him. Uh, found out about who his company even was. The company that does my laser in town is who I buy all my material from also. So I've had a relationship with them since I started my company, you know, in 2008. So 12 years I've been buying, you know, the raw materials from them, and then I find out that they have some other manufacturing capabilities with lasers, water jet, CNC lathe and mill. When I moved to Wisconsin, I decided I was tired of outsourcing parts. So that's when I redesigned the rail and the Baja because I was 
I, I didn't have a CNC lathe, you know, having somebody else build these round parts for me just didn't make sense. So I, you know, tried. So then since that time, I've kind of tried to design things. I don't, I can build in house and I'm pretty much self-sufficient except for the laser cut parts and the laser cut parts. It's just because that's cost effective. Right. To have, have great people like that behind that. Probably the other single biggest supplier, you know, that, that I work with, it's, you know, you know, I've been with a long time is JB Custom Fabrication at Almsville, Oregon. Okay. I yeah. buy all my shift boots from him, him and Rhonda, from from them, from John and Rhonda. So they've, you know, been a great partner to have for supplying the shift boots I sell with my triple sticks. And uh, people call me and say, hey, I need a new boot. And I say, no, just go to J- JB Custom Fab's website. You can order one right there. And that's kind of my payback from them. Just, you know, I don't, I include them with everything, but if there's a, they, anybody wants a new one or tour theirs, I send them right to the manufacturer and they can buy them direct from him. So that I try to keep business going that way. And we've always had, John and I and Rhonda and I have always had a great working relationship that way with our products really don't compete. So we get along really well that way. Um, I have one of the few vendors I've actually been to their shop, you know, and hung out a while. Um, a couple of years ago, we would stop by there while we were on vacation over on the Oregon coast. So great people. Um, of course, I see Cody Wagner at the events and stuff. And he, he's really great. Always asking about how his company, you know, the products that his company supplies for me. How are they? What's the quality like? So he's very self-conscious about that, too. So another great guy to, you know, have on your side to build you parts that they have capabilities, you know, to help me out. Yeah, I agree. Let's discuss the future. Are you going to keep about the same? You know, the, one of the things that that I see is people have a dilemma. They get to a certain size and they say, okay, I'm happy where I'm at or I need to grow. So that means they need to invest in either machinery or employees or, you know, a, a newer, bigger shop. Are you happy with where you're at? Do you want to grow? Do you have room for growth or do you need to, or does growth mean that you need to change how you do things now? No, I've actually grown every year, but two doing this. And it's been, you know, but, you know, starting out at zero, you know, it's kind of like a bank account. It's the last few years when you see that percentage, it's big, bigger jumps, you know, we have had huge growth just every year, but two, like I said, and even the two years that I didn't, it wasn't off that far. I mean, it's like slight dips, you know, going down. It wasn't like, you know, went from huge sales to zero sales. It was just a little bit less that, you know, makes it noticeable. The goal is to grow more to, um, you know, I'm far from being at capacity right now. So that's right now I, I've got a lot of room for growth without having to worry about equipment to buy. Okay. Um, especially if you look at the costs of the lasers or CNC press brick. Yes. I'd love to have my own, but I'd have to have them both running all day, every day to make them pay for themselves. And I'm not even near that. You know, it's like I put in an order like every few months I put in an order for laser cut parts get enough that lasts and you know if so it's not definitely not a necessity that way as far as equipment goes my wife bonnie and i've always talked about it'd be really great to get to to the point where my son who's a business manager and my son-in-law who's uh 
has helped me out in the shop and everything could come run the company type of thing and carry on, you know, with their being younger. And I have to kind of look at that just had my 60th birthday. So you got to think, well, how much longer can a person really do, you know, be doing this, you know, out the shop every day, all day, you know, I mean, I've got quite a few years left. I come from a pretty healthy family that, you know, has good longevity, but still, do I want to be doing this at 70? Do I want to be doing it at 75? At some point there in the near future, I've got to kind of think where we want to go now, you know, with close to 500 customers a year, you really don't want to just shut the doors. Right. And growing, you know, type of thing. So, well, hopefully um, they have an interest in perpetuating what you've what you've built. And I think they both do. That my son-in-law, who's the one that has the XJ that I built up, and you know, and he's helped me out in the shop a lot. He, he's an off-road guy, and he's a shop guy. Um, he's got a really good mind for being efficient at what he does. Uh, my son's the same way as far as efficiency goes. He's worked in management jobs and understands efficiencies and uh, being, you know, streamlining and things like that as far as, you know, bottom line money and, you know, time spent um, building things. So they would, they would do be a good team if we ever get to the point where I need, need help living in the country. I have plenty of room to expand. If I need to expand the building, I could, for, you know, for a small company like I have now, it'd be cheaper to add on another 30 feet of building or 40 feet of building than it would be to move into a bigger building and rent it. You know, why would I want to rent someone I could invest in it with a bigger building? Absolutely. So that's not a problem at all. And it's nice to have a place where I can, you know, drive around, you know, it's just on our property. There's uh, I've been last this last summer stacking rocks, trying to make a mini version of Cody Wagner's rock pile. <laughs> that he, he got going on but uh you know we, i've got a pretty good one started i'm gonna have to get some bigger equipment than my skid steer to be able to move any bunch bigger rocks because the last couple i couldn't pick them up but i could slide them along the ground to get them up to the rock pile so but it's uh you know it's neat to have that because uh you know i'm working on building a buggy for a guy right now so that'll be something that will be out there you know flexing out and crawling across rocks and everything with to see how it all works and performs and stuff so it's uh, it's it's going good right now, so we're just Excellent. gonna ride the wave and see what happens. You know, kind of like you, you start a company when you're not a kid and you don't think about what's gonna be in twenty years. You know, but now we're getting to that point. Well, when I when I started Cal Rocks, you know, which morphed into We Rock, I had never I never imagined wanting to retire. I was just gonna work until somebody threw dirt on me. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm, you know, 20 years into this, those thoughts are not quite the same. I'd like to spend more time enjoying the people that I'm that I'm around, meaning even the the you know, the competitors and the the other business people that that we deal with, but in a different capacity. You know, do I want to work as hard physically to do to do what we do, or would I'd rather, you know, taper off on the physical part of it and produce events where, you know, it's more like people show up and then we, we cater to them like in a social atmosphere instead of a competitive atmosphere. So that's, you know, those are the things that are going through my mind. And I would imagine that's most people that get to, uh, you know, after 20 years or whatever, or at least get to that age, where they start looking around and going, wow, do I really want to do this until the last day I'm alive or do I want to, you know, want to do something different? So 
I get it. You know, that's, uh, right. you get to a certain age and you start thinking about that. Is there, is there anything that you want to ask me? Fred Williams in the interview that I did with him turned it around and just said, Hey, I'm going to ask you a few questions. It was actually pretty interesting. So I'm going to try to incorporate incorporate that now with uh, some of the interviews. Is there anything that, since you've heard most of everything that, you know, or the interviews that I've done so far, is there something in there that you want me to expand on or anything that you, any questions you want to ask me? Well, not, not as much of a question, Rich, is that, but I've enjoyed listening to that because so many of the people either you've interviewed or talk about, like when we're at events, are people I interacted with that have never met in person until maybe well, like Bob, Bob Rogie is one of them. I have actually got to meet him at one of the We Rock events, but he was one of the first guys I ever like gave a shift or two for a Jeep, his Jeep speed. Right. Um, um, and then there's, there's just been numerous other people that, you know, are customers of mine, um, you, you know, hooked up in the industry at some point that I'm like, oh yeah, I remember talking to them. Um, John Bondurant, you know, I mean, he was, five hours away when he was up here in Montana and buying stuff from me then, you know, I mean, I didn't really know his whole story, but I knew that he'd moved to Montana and they were buying stuff there. And then he moved back to California. So it's just amazing how small this world really is. when, you know, these people that uh, they're all interconnected at some, somehow, you know, even though I've never really met most of these people that we've all had something going on, you know, in the, in the industry at some point in the last 12 years that I've been doing this. Yeah. I noticed that with our travel, what I see is that our industry, four wheel drive industry, when we're in it and we're around everybody, it seems huge. But when you step outside of it and look back into it, it really is a niche market or a niche industry within automotive as an industry, which is, niche as far as industrialization and everything else goes. So it's interesting that that we can interconnect and cross paths with people that you never knew you would, or you get to hear the stories about people, like you said, that, you know, you've interacted with, you know, through the, the business, but never personally met. And yeah. that happens to me a lot. You know, and it's like, um, uh... One of the other ones, there's there's several of them that come to mind that, you know, I, I met through, you know, supplying shifters through and then, you know, they've gone on. John Balducci is one of them. Right. Uh, you know, he's he's from the New England kind of area up there and he was racing a little Suzuki powered buggy. And then I, you know, it was one of the first guy, I, another one of the first guys I sent a shifter to to get set up. Well, now he works for Eric Miller. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, it's just it all changes around. Uh I don't know. You know, Matt Adair. Oh yes. Okay. So, and same thing with him. He calls me up and, Hey, I'm, we're building this Jeep to do this 24 hours of lemons with, and we need a shifter. And so I built him this crazy one-off funky shifter for that race sheep. And he raced the heck out of that thing. You know, I mean, there's just people like that. I've never met Matt, um, Tim Lund, you know, I mean, I know, you know him, never met him, but we've had a lot of phone conversations and emails and when, you guys bought four low 
and I'd already subscribed and Tim messaged me, you got to get this magazine. This thing is awesome. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was hilarious. Like Tim too late. I already did it. You know, I'm already on. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. That's for sure. You know, Andrew McLaughlin was another one. He, he called me up, you know, from let's roll right. When he first started that company, you know, we started about the same time called me up about shifters and he he's he's ran one in that his red buggy i think he still has it i don't know if he gets it out much anymore but since you know just about since i started my company so you know there's you know the other one that i'm probably the most proud of right now is josh atterbury the cracker fab guys oh yes you know you know they raced the uh your dirt right series for years but he's been running my shift products in his vehicles the last two years he's podiumed at the hammers he's won the ultra 4 4600 class the last two years in the west coast and nationals i believe both yep. so that's yep. you know that's really you know you know people ask the durability and i go well these guys you know look at this this vehicle you know it, it's proved itself in reliability and you know, I, I got to give him big kudos for, you know, let me be part of that team, you know, helping them with their shifting. So that's pretty cool. Excellent. Well, Rory, I want to say thank you so very much for coming on board, sharing your life, your business with uh, our listeners. We hope to continue the relationship that we've we've built over the years with you. We hope for your continued success not only in business, but in life and uh, your relationship. Thank you again for coming on board. That was great to be here. And yeah, likewise, I've really, you know, being part of uh, your We Rock group, you know, being a marketing partner that has really, you know, brought a lot to, to you know, new friends, you know, and, you know, business-wise too. It's, it's definitely been a great asset to be part of that program. Thanks again. Okay. We appreciate it. And you have a great day. You too, Rich. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.